Section 5 of Popular Lectures on Scientific Subjects. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Molehill Mountain. Popular Lectures on Scientific Subjects by Hermann von Helmholtz. Chapter 3, Part 2. Shade. The circumstances which we have hitherto discussed indicate a profound difference, and one which is exceedingly important for the perception of solid form, between the visual image which our eyes give when we stand before objects, and that which the picture gives. The choice of the objects to be represented in pictures is thereby at once much restricted. Artists are well aware that there is much which cannot be represented by the means at their disposal. Part of their artistic skill consists in the fact that by a suitable grouping, position, and turn of the objects, by a suitable choice of the point of view, and by the mode of lighting, they learn to overcome the unfavorable conditions which are imposed on them in this respect. It might at first sight appear that of the requisite truth to nature of a picture, so much would remain that, seen from the proper point of view, it would at least produce the same distribution of light, color, and shadow in its field of view, and would produce in the interior of the eye exactly the same image on the retina as the object represented would if we had it actually before us, and looked at it from a definite, fixed point of view. It might seem to be an object of pictorial skill to aim at producing, under the given limitations, the same effect as is produced by the object itself. If we proceed to examine whether, and how far, painting can satisfy such a condition, we come upon difficulties before which we should perhaps shrink, if we did not know that they had been already overcome. Let us begin with the simplest case, with the quantitative relations between luminous intensities. If the artist is to imitate exactly the impression which the object produces on our eye, he ought to be able to dispose of brightness and darkness equal to that which nature offers. But of this there can be no idea. Let me give a case in point. Let there be in a picture gallery a desert scene, in which a procession of Bedouins, shrouded in white, and of dark negroes marching under the burning sunshine. Close to it, a bluish moonlight scene where the moon is reflected in the water and groups of trees and human forms are seen to be faintly indicated in the darkness. You know from experience that both pictures, if they are well done, can produce with surprising vividness the representation of their objects, and yet, in both pictures, the brightest parts are produced with the same white lead, which is but slightly altered by admixtures, while the darkest parts are produced with the same black. Both, being hung on the wall, share the same light, and the brightest as well as the darkest parts of the two scarcely differ as concerns the degree of their brightness. How is it, however, with the actual degrees of brightness represented? The relation between the brightness of the sun's light and that of the moon was measured by Wollaston, who compared their intensities with that of the light of candles of the same material. He thus found that the luminosity of the sun is eight hundred thousand times that of the brightest light of a full moon. An opaque body, which is lighted from any source whatever, can, even in the most favorable case, only emit as much light as falls upon it. Yet, from Lambert's observations, even the whitest bodies can only reflect about two-fifths of the incident light. The sun's rays, which proceed parallel from the sun, whose diameter is 85,000 miles, when they reach us, are distributed uniformly over a sphere 195 millions of miles in diameter. 
its density and illuminating power is here only the one forty thousandth of that with which it left the sun's surface and lambert's number leads to the conclusion that even the brightest white surface on which the sun's rays fall vertically has only the one hundred thousandth part of the brightness of the sun's disk the moon however is a gray body whose mean brightness is only about one-fifth of that of the purest white and when the moon irradiates a body of the purest white on the earth its brightness is only the hundred thousandth part of the brightness of the moon itself hence the sun's disk is eighty thousand million times brighter than a white which is irradiated by the full moon now pictures which hang in a room are not lighted by the direct light of the sun but by that which is reflected from the sky in clouds i do not know of any direct measurements of the ordinary brightness of the light in a picture gallery but estimates may be made from known data with strong upper light and bright light from the clouds the brightest white on a picture has probably one twentieth of the brightness of white directly lighted by the sun it will generally be only one fortieth or even less hence the painter of the desert even if he gives up the representation of the sun's disk which is always very imperfect will have to represent the glaringly lighted garments of his bodwins with a white which in the most favourable case shows only one twentieth part of the brightness which corresponds to actual fact he could bring it with its lighting unchanged into the desert near the white there it would seem like a dark grey i found in fact by an experiment that lamp black lighted by the sun is not less than half as bright as shaded white in the brighter part of the room on the picture of the moon the same white which has been used for depicting the bodwin's garments must be used for representing the moon's disk and its reflection in the water although the real moon has only one-fifth of this brightness and its reflection in water still less hence white garments in moonlight or marble surfaces even when the artist gives them a grey shade will always be ten to twenty times as bright in his picture as they are in reality on the other hand the darkest black which the artist could apply would be scarcely sufficient to represent the real illumination of a white object on which the moon shone for even the deadest black coatings of lamp black black velvet when powerfully lighted appear grey as we often enough know to our cost when we wish to shut off superfluous light i investigated a coating of lamp black and found its brightness to be about one over one hundred that of white paper the brightest colors of a painter are only about one hundred times as bright as his darkest shades the statements i have made may perhaps appear exaggerated but they depend upon measurements and you can control them by well-known observations according to wollaston the light of a full moon is equal to that of a candle burning at a distance of twelve feet you know that we cannot read by the light of a full moon though we can read at a distance of three or four feet from a candle now assume that you suddenly pass from a room in daylight to a vault perfectly dark with the exception of the light of a single candle you would at first think you were in absolute darkness and at most you would only recognize the candle itself in any case you would not recognize the slightest trace of any objects at a distance of twelve feet from the candle these however are the objects whose illumination is the same as that which the moonlight gives you would only become accustomed to the darkness after some time and you would then find your way about without difficulty if now you return to the daylight which before was perfectly comfortable it will appear so dazzling that you will perhaps have to close the eyes and only be able to gaze round with a painful glare 
You see thus that we are concerned here not with minute, but with colossal differences. How now is it possible that, under such circumstances, we can imagine there is any similarity between the picture and reality? Our discussion of what we did not see at first, but could afterwards see in the vault, points to the most important element in the solution. It is the varying extent to which our senses are deadened by light, a process to which we can attach the same name, fatigue, as that for the corresponding one in the muscle. Any activity of our nervous system diminishes its power for the time being. The muscle is tired by work, the brain is tired by thinking, and by mental operations. The eye is tired by light, and the more so, the more powerful the light. Fatigue makes it dull and insensitive to new impressions, so that it appreciates strong ones only moderately, and weak ones not at all. But now you see how different is the aim of the artist when these circumstances are taken into account. The eye of the traveller in the desert, who is looking at the caravan, has been dulled to the last degree by the dazzling sunshine, while that of the wanderer by moonlight has been raised to the extreme of sensitiveness. The condition of one who is looking at a picture differs from both the above cases by possessing a certain mean degree of sensitiveness. Accordingly, the painter must endeavor to produce by his colors on the moderately sensitive eye of the spectator the same impression as that which the desert, on the one hand, produces on the dead end, and the moonlight, on the other hand, creates on the untired eye of its observer. Hence, along with the actual luminous phenomena of the outer world, the different physiological conditions of the eye play a most important part in the work of the artist. What he has to give is not a mere transcript of the object, but a translation of his impression into another scale of sensitiveness, which belongs to a different degree of impressibility of the observing eye, in which the organ speaks a very different dialect in responding to the impressions of the outer world. In order to understand to what conclusions this leads, I must first of all explain the law which Fechner discovered for the scale of sensitiveness of the eye, which is a particular case of the more general psychophysical law of the relations of the various sensuous impressions to the irritations which produce them. This law may be expressed as follows. Within very wide limits of brightness, differences in the strength of light are equally distinct or appear equal in sensation, if they form an equal fraction of the total quantity of light compared. Thus, for instance, differences in intensity of one hundredth of the total amount can be recognized without great trouble with very different strengths of light. Without exhibiting material differences in the certainty and facility of the estimate, whether the brightest daylight or the light of a good candle be used. The easiest method of producing accurately measurable differences in the brightness of two white surfaces depends on the use of rapidly rotating disks. If a disk, like the adjacent one in figure 3, is made to rotate very rapidly, that is, 20 to 30 times in a second, it appears to the eye to be covered with three gray rings, as in figure 4. The reader must, however, figure to himself the gray of these rings as it appears on the rotating disk in figure 3 as a scarcely perceptible shade of the ground. When the rotation is rapid, each ring of the disk appears illuminated, as if all the light which fell upon it had been uniformly distributed over its entire surface. Those rings, in which are the black bands, are somewhat less light than the quite white ones, and if the breadth of the marks is compared with the length of half the circumference of the corresponding ring, we get the fraction by which the intensity of the light in the white ground of the disk is diminished in the ring in question. 
If the bands are all equally broad, as in figure 3, the inner rings appear darker than the outer ones, for in this latter case the same loss of light is distributed over a larger area than in the former. In this way, extremely delicate shades of brightness may be obtained, and by this method, when the strength of the illumination varies, the brightness always diminishes by the same proportion of its total value. Now it is found, in accordance with Fechner's law, that the distinctness of the rings is nearly constant for very different strengths of light. We exclude, of course, the cases of too dazzling or too dim a light. In both cases, the finer distinction can no longer be perceived by the eye. The case is quite different when, for different strengths of illumination, we produce differences which always correspond to the same quantity of light. If, for instance, we close the shutter of a room at daytime so that it is quite dark, and now light it by a candle, we can discriminate without difficulty the shadows such as that of the hand thrown by the candle on a sheet of white paper. If, however, the shutters are again opened so that daylight enters the room, for the same position of the hand we can no longer recognize the shadow, although there falls on that part of the white sheet which is not struck by this shadow the same excess of candlelight as upon the parts shaded by the hand. But this small quantity of light disappears in comparison with the newly added daylight, provided that this strikes all parts of the white sheet uniformly. You see then that, while the differences between candlelight and darkness can be easily perceived, the equally great difference between daylight on the one hand and daylight plus candlelight on the other can be no longer recognized. This law is of great importance in discriminating between various degrees of brightness of natural objects. A white body appears white because it reflects a large fraction, and a gray body appears gray because it reflects a small fraction of incident light. For different intensities of illumination, the difference of brightness between the two will always correspond to the same fraction of their total brightness, and hence will be equally perceptible to our eyes, provided we do not approach too near to the upper or the lower limit of the brightness, for which Fechner's law no longer holds. Hence, on the whole, the painter can produce what appears an equal difference for the spectator of his picture, notwithstanding the varying strength of light in the gallery, provided he gives his colors the same ratio of brightness as that which actually exists. For, in fact, in looking at natural objects, the absolute brightness in which they appear to the eye varies within very wide limits, according to the intensity of the light and the sensitiveness of the eye. That which is constant is only the ratio of the brightness in which surfaces of various depth of color appear to us when lighted to the same amount. But this ratio of brightness is for us the perception from which we form our judgment as to the lighter or darker color of the bodies we see. Now, this ratio can be imitated by the painter without restraint, and in conformity with nature, to evoke in us the same conception as to the nature of the bodies seen. A truthful imitation in this respect would be attained within the limits in which Fechner's law holds, if the artist reproduced the fully lighted parts of the object which he has to represent with pigments, which, with the same light, are equal to the colors to be represented. This is approximately the case. On the whole, the painter chooses colored pigments which almost exactly reproduce the colors of the bodies represented, especially for objects of no great depth, such as portraits, which are only darker in the shaded parts. Children begin to paint on this principle. They imitate one color by another, and, in like manner also, 
nations in which painting has remained in a childish stage. Perfect artistic painting is only reached when we have succeeded in imitating the action of light upon the eye, and not merely the pigments, and only when we look at the object of pictorial representation from this point of view will it be possible to understand the variations from nature which artists have to make in the choice of their scale of color and of shade. These are, in the first case, due to the circumstance that Fechner's law only holds for mean degrees of brightness, while, for a brightness which is too high or too low, appreciable divergences are met with. In both extremes of luminous intensity, the eye is less sensitive for differences in light than is required by that law. With very strong light, it is dazzled, that is, its internal activity cannot keep pace with the external excitations, the nerves are too soon tired. Very bright objects appear almost always to be equally bright, even when there are, in fact, material differences in their luminous intensity. The light at the edge of the sun is only about half as bright as that at the center, yet none of you will have noticed that if you have not looked through colored glass which reduce the brightness to a convenient extent. With a weak light, the eye is also less sensitive, but from the opposite reason. If a body is so feebly illuminated that we scarcely perceive it, we shall not be able to perceive that its brightness is lessened by a shadow by the one hundredth or even by a tenth. It follows from this that, with moderate illumination, darker objects become more like the darkest objects, while with greater illumination, brighter objects become more like the brightest than should be the case in accordance with Fechner's law, which holds for mean degrees of illumination. From this results what, for painting, is an extremely characteristic difference between the impression of very powerful and very feeble illumination. When painters wish to represent glowing sunshine, they make all objects almost equally bright, and thus produce, with their moderately bright colors, the impression which the sun's glow makes upon the dazzled eye of the observer. If, on the contrary, they wish to represent moonshine, they only indicate the very brightest objects, particularly the reflection of moonlight on shining surfaces, and keep everything so dark as to be almost unrecognizable. That is to say, they make all dark objects more like the deepest dark which they can produce with their colors than should be the case in accordance with the true ratio of the luminosities. In both cases they express, by their gradation of the lights, the insensitiveness of the eye for differences of too bright or too feeble lights. If they could employ the color of the dazzling brightness of full sunshine, or of the actual dimness of moonlight, they would not need to represent the gradation of light in their picture other than it is in nature. The picture would then make the same impression on the eye as is produced by equal degrees of brightness of actual objects. The alteration in the scale of shade which has been described is necessary because the colors of the picture are seen in the mean brightness of a moderately lighted room, for which Fechner's law holds, and therewith objects are to be represented whose brightness is beyond the limits of this law. We find that the older masters, and preeminently Rembrandt, employed the same deviation which corresponds to that actually seen in moonlight landscapes, and this in cases in which it is by no means wished to produce the impression of moonshine, or of a similar feeble light. The brightest parts of the object are given in these pictures in bright, luminous, yellowish colors, but the shades toward the black are made very marked so that the darker objects are almost lost in an impermeable darkness. 
but this darkness is covered with the yellowish haze of powerfully lighted aerial masses so that notwithstanding their darkness these pictures give the impression of sunlight and the very marked gradation of the shadows the contours of the faces and figures are made extremely prominent the deviation from strict truth to nature is very remarkable in this shading and yet these pictures give particularly bright and vivid aspects of the objects hence they are of particular interest for understanding the principles of pictorial illumination in order to explain these actions we must i think consider that while fechner's law is approximately correct for those mean lights which are agreeable to the eye the deviations which are so marked for too high or too low lights are not without some influence in the region of the middle lights we have to observe more closely in order to perceive this influence it is found in fact that when the very finest differences of shade are produced on a rotating disc they are only visible by a light which about corresponds to the illumination of a white paper on a bright day which is lighted by the light of the sky but is not directly struck by the sun with such a light shades of one over one fifty or one over one eighty of the total intensity can be recognized the light in which pictures are looked at is on the contrary much feebler and if we are to retain the same distinctness of the finest shadows and of the modelling of the contours which it produces the gradations of shade in the picture must be somewhat stronger than corresponds to the exact luminous intensities the darkest objects of the picture thereby become unnaturally dark which is however not detrimental to the object of the artist if the attention of the observer is to be directed to the brighter parts the great artistic effectiveness of this manner shows us that this chief emphasis is to be laid on imitating difference of brightness and not on absolute brightness and that the greatest differences in this latter respect can be borne without perceptible incongruity if only their gradations are imitated with expression end of section five